The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and Jonathan Ernie. They are partners at Shepherd Mullen. Um, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you very much. One of the things on the show we always talk about a lot is compliance and integrity, right? And, you know, God knows federal contractors, that's foundational, right, to success in the federal the market um, with between the Civil False Claims Act, um, you know, suspension and debarment, um, you know, the mandatory disclosure rule and those requirements. Um, you know, there's just so much fundamental to compliance and really that translates into the private, I mean, into commercial business too. I mean, it's part of being successful in the real world. So, and I know you guys focus a lot on that. And, um, one of the things that you've come up with is an organizational integrity group. Yep. So tell us, tell, tell us, tell the listeners about that. What is it, you know, what you, what the focus is and how you're trying to support compliance, ethical, Conduct, com- integrity, all those good things. Sure, sure. Well, Roger, this is J- Jonathan. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll kick it off. So, you know, D- David Scott and I and our some of our partners, we've been spending decades kind of solving problems after they occur. Uh, and as part of that, like most of your listeners, we spent a lot of time trying to prevent problems. But uh, what 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 finally kind of coalesced through that experience is is really a, a different way of thinking about problem solving, and that's what led to what we call the Organizational Integrity Group. And, and, and what, what we are is we're a group of uh, litigators, uh, regulatory specialists, GovCon geeks like me, uh, people that do suspension debarment, et cetera. And, and we've, we've created this cross-disciplinary group where we, we focus on what we call values-driven problem solving. We focus on uh, holistic problem solving. We, we really work with companies, our clients, to uh, to kind of do three things. One, pre- prevent problems before they occur, uh, d- deal with these problems when they do uh, kind of as they're occurring, and then uh, uh, to try to rein things back in and then protect the overall integrity of the organization after they occur. And I think what, what unifies this all is is what you see in the title of the group, this organizational integrity. And it's a focus, like I said, on holistic solutions, integrity, and values. So in, in that regard, how is that sort of you know, different, different? different from what people have done before um, and also what's different from your other practice groups at Shepherd sure. Mound? Sure. Well, Roger, if I can jump in on that. Um, what we've really found is that over time, uh, businesses and sometimes even lawyers tend to focus narrowly on legal obligations. And they forget all the other important values that come into play in terms of running an organization and in terms of accountability. When you think about it at its simplest, law is a set of value statements. It's our articulation of what's right and wrong. But our laws reflect a very broad sense of right and wrong. And so in any situation, you have legal obligations. You have regulatory obligations. Um, but there are also, and these legal and regulatory 
uh, obligations are designed roughly to reflect broader social values. And in uh, any situation, those broader social values sometimes get lost. And what we found is the key to keeping an organization on track, the key to being accountable is often to think about the broader values uh, that are implicated. What do your constituents think? What do important stakeholders such as regulatory partners or uh, enforcement officials or your customers, your shareholders, the public broadly, when you have a matter, particularly a matter that's in the public eye but sometimes uh, more private matters, you have to think of – to solve the problem, you have to think about the full range of values that are, are implicated. And that's what we have done for years. That's the approach we've taken and as Jonathan says – that really coalesced into this idea of organizational integrity. You know, to 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 give just one specific example. So, well, look, like you, I spent a lot of time dealing with price reduction clause problems for for government contractors. Right, as as uh, probably most of your listeners know, it's a it's a most favored customer type provision of a government contract. And 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 what's happened over the years is I frequently get called in, and, and a company is focusing on on a very very narrow issue. Like okay, what well, why, what was wrong with this discount, and and this this narrow focus ends up sometimes not solving the problem. Because the broader problem might be cultural. The broader problem might be lack of a compliance structure. The the, the broader problem might be um, the actions of the employees are no longer aligned with the stated values of the company. So so if you really want to solve these problems, you have to look at these things more holistically. And it's kind of that realization which you see coming out of any type of government contracts or non-government contracts matter is what is what drove us toward this as a solution. So, Scott, when you when you guys were thinking about, I mean, it's it, you really bring in all the be- different parts of the firm right. together. Whether it's folks who focus on regulatory issues, like you mentioned, or government contracts, to try to put together something that people can see as an overarching approach to handling integrity issues. Is that is that fair, a fair description? Yes, it is. And it's what makes it work and what's been actually very gratifying to us when we've presented this to clients is how much it resonates to them that, they're, that they need to solve the problem in a holistic way. You need to look at not just the, the narrow legal problem that's presented itself. And when you start thinking that way, it's amazing how quickly you start aligning with the way, for example, your board of directors is thinking or the way your investors are thinking, or the way your broader community of, of, of stakeholders is thinking. So um, it's a way of bringing a large solution to, to what might look like on, on its surface a small problem. And the, and the way that works best is when you've got a group looking at it holistically from a lot of different angles. And, and Roger, you, so something that we kind of – I don't know if I can say we stumbled upon it, but but that that worked out well for us is to, to your point about this cross disciplinary piece. So you know, D- David's a, a former prosecutor, white collar lawyer. Uh, uh, I'm a government contracts person. I'm also the federal monitor over the New Orleans Police Department. Scott's a prior independent counsel person and focused on in- international trade. And and we're, we're literally we're sitting around uh, trying to figure out where that intersection of all that is and. You know, and and this is this is where it seems to lie. So yeah, you know, so so you have that holistic. So you've you've created a, a group that holistically yeah. can provide support to 
um, to clients and insights and, and, and thoughtful you know, analysis. The other part, it seems to me, is you're covering all the bases, right? So you talk about before the problem, uh, upon discovery of the problem, and after the problem has been, you know, after it becomes a real problem, right? And those are very can be very different things and require very different skill sets or approaches to handling that on behalf of a client. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and actually, Doug, I'll start. Uh, Doug, Dave, excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, it's, it, it's Dave his fault Douglas. because he has I mean, two, yeah, you, yeah, he has two first names, uh, so you can't be blamed, yeah, yeah, Roger. I think we don't have Joseph J. here with yeah. us. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll pick up on that, um, as, as Jonathan was alluding to. I, I'm the litigator in the group, so I'm definitely mostly on the after-the-problem right, right. Uh, part of it. But when I'm advising clients and we're looking at the legal issue, what I frequently have to do is get them to step back and think about the broader perspective and – and, and resist the tendency to get tunnel vision on legal and technical um, issues and defenses. And I say, wait a minute, um, you have to understand prosecutors, judges, juries, the public, they all use the law as a means to an end. They don't just look technically at whether you've complied with the law. They're really asking, you know, have you done the right thing? Right. And, and, and that it's framed by the law. And so what we – what I always try and get my clients to do is let's talk about what is right, the right thing. Why is what we did the right thing to do or um, to resist the urge to rationalize what you did as the right thing to do, particularly in the procurement sector? Um, the rules are complex. They're arcane. Sometimes they're unreasonable. But the fundamental premise is that the government's a steward of the public's money. And sometimes I've had to say to clients – Slow your roll here. Wait a minute. It's not unfair for the government to put conditions on how its money is spent because it's a trust for taxpayer funds. So then we, we work from there. But from the we try to stay at the big picture, the values uh, of our audience as well as our own corporate uh, values. And that's been really valuable to think about too when we're creating compliance programs or when we're defending in, a, in an investigation – all the way through that spectrum of kind of the life cycle of a of a organizational integrity problem that threatens the very integrity of the of the company when when we're able to create corrective actions for example that show how we've isolated the problem and addressed the problem and prevented it from happening in the future taken steps to to prevent and detect future similar violations when you can frame that as this is what we've done to to do the right thing, even if we've had a misstep up to now, that helps you frame your argument to the government. And it's in some ways, it's a lot of what every compliance lawyer has done for a long, long time. But the the way of thinking about it from a values perspective from the very beginning allows you to frame that argument when you get through to the end of the investigation. And that's been that's been a very helpful way of thinking about it. So, guys, you know what? We're already up on the first break. And when I come back, you know, I want to, you know, explore some examples of some of the work that have has that have provided lessons learned and your approach to handling, you know, future situations. My guests today are David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and Jonathan Ernie from Shepherd Mullen, and we're talking about Shepherd Mullen's organizational integrity group. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the. Federal News Network.
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are from Shepard Mullen. They are David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and Jonathan Erney, and we're talking about the OIG. No, no, not that OIG we're all thinking about. It's, this is the Organizational Integrity Group, a, a new practice group that's at, that, that Shepard Mullen, Jonathan, uh, David, and Scott have um, so kindly come in to talk, to talk today about. And when I took the break, we were going to, this segment, talk about some lessons learned, some real-life examples that sort of go into the insights and in, in your approach to providing support for clients in a in and particularly in government contracts, which is a highly regulated regulated industry. And David, I think we're going to start with you. And I think we're going to talk about the Branch Davidian and the Waco. Um, that was in the 1990s, I think, right? It was, I think, in April 93. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and as some of your listeners, I think, uh, may remember, um, there was a, a religious group down in Waco, Texas. They were called the Branch Davidians. They lived on a compound and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, got a report that they had illegal weapons there. And so they planned a raid uh, to uh, retrieve the weapons and perhaps arrest the individuals. And the raid went horribly wrong. Uh, the Branch Davidians indeed did have uh, – were heavily armed. Uh, they killed four of the ATF agents. Uh, a siege uh, conducted largely by the FBI ensued. And after a number of days, um, uh, the compound caught fire. And so in addition to the four agents who died, uh, all of the occupants in the compound died as well. So this was obviously tremendous uh, tragedy all around, and it became quite a social controversy in large part because uh, statements made by the Bureau after the fact were being contradicted on, in the media by agents saying, no, that's not what happened. So the Treasury Department responded by announcing that it would conduct an investigation. And it was, this was interesting because there's not a law enforcement investigation I was in private practice then, and I was asked to come and run this investigation uh, under the uh, uh, under the in the Treasury structure. Um, but it wasn't a law enforcement investigation. We were just trying to make a public accounting. Um, and what we found there to do that, the question is, how do we not only conduct an investigation and reach findings that are fair? How do we do it so that they are perceived as fair? Yes, all the questions out there. Right. And that's a big challenge today. I would say. It's a, it's a, right. And even though this happened in the 90s, it was at the front end of social media. But it's much more true today when yeah. so much of what happens that used to be private, if you will, is now covered out there in the social media or even the mainstream media. And in fact, in the Waco case, um, what we found early on, there was social media and people had their own facts. They were getting their own reports. There were what we considered conspiracy theories out there. But we realized to be perceived as uh, credible and, and objective, we had to answer all those questions. So in addition to doing our investigation, we also monitored social media so that when we ultimately made our report, we knew that we had addressed the range of questions, concerns, judgments that were out there. So even though that work was longer ago uh, than I care to think about, that experience really has infused um, everything I've done in representing uh, mostly private companies since – this notion, if we have to step back and, and understand not just how this looks to us, but how it's going to look to the people who watch, pay attention to what we Right, do. sort of like knowing your audience. It's very much that. knowing yeah. your audience and making sure, you know, you, to, for your message to be received, you have to speak in terms that your audience, that will resonate with your audience. And sometimes I think that gets lost. So that's what we're trying to right. bring back in. Jonathan, you, um, that's a great example. And, and I, that understanding the questions 
that people have, um, you can't answer the questions if you don't know what they are or get what they are, right? Absolutely right. And in the courtroom, of course, we do it with jury consultants and others because we yes, want to know right. what, are, what are the questions a juror uh, is going to have. Um, but in so many of the matters we deal with today, they're reputational. We call them the Waco is reputational or institutional. Right. And you're speaking much more directly to the, to the public. And Jonathan, you have an example? Yeah, the- yeah. and I, I have to say it was, it was kind of fun putting this together because you, you, you realize that, that these diverse experiences that sound at first glance like they're all so different are really remarkably the same in terms of the lessons learned. So the, 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 one, the one that I think is closest to my heart now is, is David and I are the federal monitors over the New Orleans Police Department consent decree. doesn't sound at all like a procurement matter, I grant you, and it isn't, but – but we're responsible for really monitoring, leading the reform effort of a major police department, uh, you know, to the benefit of four hundred thousand uh, c- c- civilians, and 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 what we've taken away from that and infused in our OIG effort, and I think these lessons are of benefit to any government contractor is kind of the things that Roger you're going to say are pretty basic, but uh, the importance of transparency in solving a problem. Right? That's critical in New Orleans, but it's also critical when you're dealing with an SDO, suspension department official, or an IG or the DOJ. Uh, accountability. And when we think of accountability, whether it's in New Orleans or whether it's in the procurement space, we really think about real accountability and perceived accountability, and you need both. Right? To your point earlier that it matters how people perceive what's going on, uh, and, and you can't have one and not the other. Um, substance over box checking. You know, early on in New Orleans, there was a lot of effort to just check boxes. And I think sometimes in the procurement world, companies that face a problem think they can check off a few boxes, but they don't really get to the underlying root cause of the problem. Um, yeah, it's true of the government as well. Oh, for, flip for side. sure. Well, we can do a whole separate show if you want on on the government right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and how it could benefit from some of these same <laughs> concepts. Uh, and, and, then, and then also in New Orleans, I think it piggybacks on something David was saying is that it became critically important to know the audience slash stakeholders. And if, if you're trying to reform a police department, you got to think of who all the stakeholders are, right? You have, you have city council, you have the Department of Justice, you have your citizens, you have your visitors. And, and if, you're a, if you're a company, say you're a government contractor and you're trying to solve a problem, your stakeholders are, are all over the place, right? Because you have your employees, right? You have your customers, your clients, you have your board, you have the public, you have the enforcement authorities, and and just like we do in New Orleans, you got to find solutions that work for all of those stakeholders. So yeah, New Orleans has been a fascinating experience uh, that that as with as with Branch Davidians and Waco have really informed, I think, our thinking here and give everyone a lot of lessons that they can learn to uh, to protect themselves. So do you think um, when you talk about you know re- reaching a balanced solution, let's say holistic? Solution, oh, I like that word. It's a okay. great choice of so words for all the different stakeholders. Is a big part of that is making sure, or, or, or it's the communication, or so that stakeholders understand each other's perspectives as well. Is Scott? Yeah, we see that a lot. In fact, a lot of our Compliance and investigative efforts are about bridging cultural gaps. One of the areas of work I do quite a lot of is in the higher education university context. And there, you've got a really interesting culture clash now. There's a a big enforcement effort within the U.S. government over the last decade or so to crack down on export controls and sanctions 
uh, concerns with universities where they've got these wildly diverse populations conducting really interesting, very high technology research. And for the longest time, universities considered themselves completely exempt from export controls. And uh, now they're finding that the so-called fundamental research exception for universities isn't isn't uh, the blanket exception that they thought it was. And so we're trying to teach essentially the law enforcement and export control community that universities are about free exchange of information. And we're trying to teach universities that uh, that export controls is about controlling the way, where information goes. So it's an interesting uh, interesting situation where you have to understand the culture of of all stakeholders in order to come to a solution that works. And I you know I I think to your point Roger about understanding the audience and understanding the stakeholders. We we all spend a lot of time focusing on how people think. I, I in, in fact in in some ways I think that's probably what I do more than anything else in my job. It's it's understanding how people think, how people make decisions. And and we've brought a lot of that into the organizational integrity group. So we 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 actually have a what we call a first principles paper. We have these short kind of fun to read two-page papers uh, that really focus on how we think about problem solving. And, they're, they're and you know what? When we come back, we'll talk more about the first Oh, principles. good, because okay. I was just getting started, Okay, man. and we're up on the break already. My guests today are from Shepard Mullen, David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and Jonathan Ernie, all partners at Shepard Mullen. And when we come back, we'll talk about the first principles as a framework for, for meeting the challenges that uh, clients have in addressing compliance issues. I'm Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and Jonathan Ernie from Shepard Mullen. We're talking about the OIG, <laughs> the Organizational Integrity Group. Um, at Shepherd Mullen, and you know, one of the things that uh, fascinated me when I was reading about uh, OIG is this concept or this this framework that you guys have um, developed. Uh, the first principles. Can you talk about what are they, or just generally, and how you came up with the idea for for the first principles? Yeah, sure. Um, th- this is the type of thing that comes out of you know conversations with a people who like thinking about how people think, and b a good margarita. Um, we, we we felt that it was it was it does imp- expand your horizon, <laughs> doesn't it? Though? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, well, for first, the, the the concept of first principles is, I mean, that that was that's an uh, an Aristotle concept where he was trying to figure out the first principles of science and math. But the the idea is, hey, let's let, let's see if we can get complicated issues down to their very basic, simplest elements. And and we thought it was a not only a good idea but a fair idea. That that if if we have this different way of thinking about problem solving, we should be able to articulate what the principles of that of that are, and and not only that, but to do so in a way where any company, contractor, public entity that wants to focus on organizational integrity can take those same principles and and apply them on their own. So we put together a series of our first principles, and they're they're kind of fun to read, two page things. They're on the website; anyone can just take them. And there'll be more over time, I suspect. But just to give you one idea, before the break, you were talking about understanding your stakeholders and understanding how people think. So one of our first first principles is 
is, is really uh, understanding cognitive illusions and cognitive biases. There's, there's a lot of social science that goes into the way people make decisions. And whether you're a government contractor dealing with a, with a federal IG auditor or you're dealing with the Department of Justice trying to negotiate the resolution of the case or, or whether nothing bad's happened yet and you're trying to figure out how to incentivize your employees to comply with whatever, the Trade Agreements Act, right? understanding how people think and, and, and the tricks their brain play on them and, and all that under the rubric of, this, of these cognitive illusions, that, 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 really, that really brought us to our first First Principles paper. And it, it highlights, highlights the way we think about those issues. So as part of that, Jonathan, real quickly, um, and then I want to ask Scott um, to provide you know, one of the other First Principles. But as a part of understanding how people think and make decisions, in the world we deal deal with, it's not just the people; it's the organizations, isn't it? How they make the, the decision making within an organization, isn't that a key it, part of it? It it absolutely is, and and so let, let's let's bring it back to the procurement space again. So let's let's say you're trying to negotiate the resolution of a of a price negotiation with a contracting officer. Well, if if you really want that to go to be successful, you need to think about what the institutional incentives is on the part of GSA. Uh, maybe there was a, uh, an, a, um, a CAV, a customer assistance visit auditor involved, and you need to know what drives those people. And then you need to know the way the individuals are thinking, right? What's, what's in it for the CO? Does, is the CO's back to the wall? If the CO's back to the wall and he or she's getting pressure from an auditor, is that going to direct certain types of decisions? So yeah, you're right. It's 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 how the individuals think and how the institutions either wittingly or unwittingly incentivize that thinking. Right, right. Scott, do you want to provide another sure. example of the, the first principles? Well, one of the things that Jonathan's talking about is organizational culture. And one of our first principles is how to understand and heed what's going on in the organization and how organizations think and how they make decisions. And when you're looking at a problem or trying to think through a problem – it's very useful to see what the culture of the organization is. An example is when, when we were doing work for a, a very large federal contractor in the um, aerospace sector, there was a merger between two of these organizations, and one of them was under a federal consent decree. And, the, the, and so it had a, a, a compliance department that was a behemoth, and it was very, very well organized, and they had a very specific way of doing things. And after the merger, the the government that was in, as part of enforcing the consent decree required the two companies to align their compliance programs. And that was our job, to understand what the compliance culture was in both companies, what the procedures were, and more importantly, what was driving each of those procedures. And when they differed, we had to figure out which one made mo- the most sense for the unified um, company and we were we were in a sense trying to help the company understand its own values as a new company and how to tie those uh, compliance obligations within each company to the values of the combined company and in the end you're doing that in a in a way that is uh, at least in the best world is satisfying all of your stakeholders in this case it's the uh, regulators who enforce the consent decree it's all of your shareholders and all of your investors it's also you've got to continue to to supply your customers and 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 do so in compliance with all the various uh, legal regimes so it's understanding corporate culture 
is one of our first principles. And, and, and another one that you have in there, but I think to be able to successfully execute what you described is communication. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's a big part of it. And my other question for you, Scott, it, se- it seems to me when you start talking about organizational cultures, don't you have to start at the top? Is that it's, a, it's a good point. It, it, there is a way in which, and we all in compliance always talk about the tone at the top and how important it is for there to be good investment in compliance from the very top of an organization. However, what we found is that that an that an organizational an organization's culture is actually really organic to the entire organization. And when we've, when we've seen where we have to drive a change through an organization, it's really important to understand how everybody at all levels of the organization think and drive those solutions so that you're understanding each of those perspectives. If I can p- piggyback that on for a second before – I know David's chomping at the bit to talk about one of his first principles. But I, I think Scott's point is very important. The, most of your listeners, most of the companies listening actually do have a great tone at the top. Like uh, Companies are very good – at the tone at the top messaging, where that tone sometimes get lost is in the middle, right? And 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 that's that's so important. It's it, it's harder to get the tone there because it's it's a it's a wider group of people. Those people are often incentivized by profit and loss statements more than anything else. Uh, and so, so you can't just think tone at the top. You have to think tone at the director of of commercial sales, tone or at the, the director of, of federal sales, sales yeah. right? Tone at the director of of um of your support organization, so it's just kind of tone at the top, the bottom, the middle, you know, inside out, outside in. Right, uh, David, do you want to talk about um, practicing civility? <laughs> you know, civility may seem like an odd first principle, but we're we're it's very important to us, and we're very committed to it. You think of civility as a sign of respect, and it's a sign of respect that for someone else's values. Um, and so, whether you're dealing with regulators. Um, enforcement agents or your own people, just showing, uh, treating them with civility um, is important for efficiency, for getting at the truth. Um, you know, whereas lawyers, it tends to promote an adversarial uh, relationship, but it doesn't have to be an adversarial uh, dynamic. And in fact, that adversarial dynamic uh, really can frustrate your objectives. And, and I can think of one particular example where a company had done an internal investigation then asked me to come in to, to look at it to see whether they really had committed a violation. And when I went around talking to people, what I found is everyone was so angry at each other because one the, – the folks who had done the investigation were essentially accusing people of committing fraud. And before I could even talk with them, they would say, I didn't commit any fraud. I wouldn't do anything wrong. And, and, and they were right. And – and my first task, and after I went around and did the first round of interviews, I went to the general counsel and said, before we get to the legal, we've got to repair the relationships because this thing is all going to fall apart if we just focus on the law. And so we talked with each – with everyone and said, we understand. Uh, we're not here to accuse you. We understand you got to get up every morning trying to do the right thing. What we're trying to figure out is where the breakdown happened and we, we want your help. And that really sort of opened up – People, We got better answers, but we were able to get a better solution because we got everybody on board understanding, right, we're all together working to do the right thing. And I do the same thing when I'm talking to the government, you know, and, and when I'm, when I'm um, on my high horse about it. Uh, I was in the government. I say, you know, when I um, 
turned in my credentials at the Department of Justice. I didn't turn in my integrity. Um, right, we're, right. we're all here mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the right result here, and I think we all have to be open that there's not always one clear, narrow, right answer, and that's what we're working to achieve, the right answer under all the circumstances. We have really found that m- focusing very carefully on civility aids truth-seeking. It not only gets you able to talk about things together in a more in a more open way, but it gets it it allows you to speak way more openly. Um, and and we've all found that in investigations or or in all phases of these issues, the the more openness you can have, the better. And civility is a really important driver of truth seeking. Well, guys, we're up on our last break. When we come back, we can sum up real quickly the. First principles, and then um, I want to get your insights and lessons learned for the folks out there when they're thinking about their compliance programs, how to handle certain situations, um, and what they should be thinking about as they conduct business with the federal government. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and... Jonathan Erney from Shepard Mullen, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are from Shepard Mullen, David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and Jonathan Erney, all partners there. And we're talking about the OIG, and I don't mean the OIG, I mean the organizational integrity group at Shepherd Mullen. And last segment, uh, we talked, guys, we talked a lot about, or you went through some of the key first principles, uh, a sort of a analytical framework for handling situations. And Scott, can you just sort of summarize those principles and and what you use them for? And yes. then I'd like to, after that, I'd like to learn, uh, turn to lessons learned and takeaways for Great. folks well, the- listening. The first principles are an illustration of the way we think about problems. And the reason we put them together in writing on the website is so that you can think about problems in a new way too. The idea is that you can you can take these principles and use them to enhance your capability of solving any type of problem, whether it's a compliance or a, an enforcement or an investigation uh, or, or any other type of corporate problem. So the idea is to summarize the approaches that help us do these these things in a much more efficient way. And, and you can go on the website and find that's these. That's good. I was about to ask you for that website. Go ahead, it's Scott. It's www.shepherdmullen.com slash OIG. And, and Jonathan, uh, let's turn to some lessons learned and takeaways for folks listening with regard to the whole issue, <laughs> challenge, opportunity of compliance. Sure. There's a lot, and I'm sure my my partners here are gonna are gonna want to jump in. I uh, I'll, I'll kick it off. Uh, will with you one. Let, will you let them? I don't Jonathan? know. Okay. I don't know because I get excited. <laughs> no, that's about, my job. That's my I, job. I get excited <laughs> about you know organizational integrity, Roger. So I'll I'll start with this one. It's um I I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned for companies when they're considering risk. So I I I think I think for too long, uh, companies and frankly lawyers have tried to segregate legal risk from business risk, from ethics risk, and reputational risk. And, and yet when we talk to our clients, when we're talking to the board, when we're talking to the audit committee, the board, or the general counsel, the CEO, r- risk is risk to them. Right? It, 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 it doesn't, doesn't really matter what, what bucket you put it in. 
So, so I think one of, one of our lessons learned and one of the lessons learned for any contractor out there is, is to think about risk more broadly. To don't, when you have a problem, don't examine it in a vacuum, right? Step back. Think about what aspects of risk are contributing to the problem. How is this all contributing to the overall risk of the company? And if you think broadly, you're far more likely to hit upon the actual root cause of the problem and be able to solve it. So I'll, I'll start with that one. Yeah, well, just to follow up on yeah. that. So you could have an ironclad price reduction clause that you know completely addresses the risk, but it could be counterproductive for your business. Is that kind of <laughs> well? No, it's, it's, that absolutely is true. The, the one, I mean, the, the one that I that I kind of jumps to my mind is I, I was representing a company years ago. We did a lot of background investigations for the U.S. government, and we and we got stuck with uh, with uh, false claims act allegations and congressional inquiries and suspension debarment, and it was it was it was kind of a perfect storm, if you will, of, of problems. Any attempt to to stovepipe the problem and the solution would have failed. Uh, only by by looking at risk broadly and 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 asking yourself what is really contributing. Is there is there a cultural problem? Is there a problem that our value statement is not is not being understood or not being accepted by by the personnel? Um, now, what, what is incentivizing the alleged behavior? So, so only by thinking about it broadly were we able to really attack the problem. David, you want to provide some insights or thoughts? Yeah, I think um, I'll pick up on the cognitive um, first principle and how people think. And I think my what I've learned and my takeaway and what I frequently tell clients is let's just presume everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. Um, and go from there. And I think it also feeds into civility. When these problems arise, there's a quick rush to judgment and a, and a tendency to believe that whoever disagrees is doing it through bad motives. I think that's not only often wrong, I think, as we've been discussing. It's really counterproductive yeah. to trying yeah. to solve um, the problem. So I think uh, my, my, my takeaway uh, for this is just start with presuming that everybody – was trying to do the right thing, and then let's figure out what went wrong from there. Right. Scott? My takeaway from all of this, and including founding this, uh, this group with these great partners, is that, the, that values are at the secret heart of all major problems that organizations face. And if you can understand what the values are and how they are playing in the problem and in the solution, you're going to get better solutions to the, to the issues. And I want, to, um, I want to propose what may be a novel position that we take about values, which is that lawyers and your law firms and your legal departments are uniquely positioned to help understand the interplay of values and compliance because lawyers – understand values. We are one of the few professions that is under a very, very strict code of professional responsibility. Um, We are also in a very unique position of being able to take the problem and the the review of the problem and throw the cloak of attorney-client privilege over it. And so when you've got those kind of of, um, advantages, your, your legal department is in a very good position to help you uh, frame the issue as a as an issue of, of of values, and to frame the solution in a way that sticks by by tying it to the corporation's values. Can I sneak in another one so that I sure, can get two? Sure. All these other oh. guys only get one. 
Uh, but I'll, I'll do it by linking it to Scott so he can get part of the credit for it. Um, one of the trends I'm really noticing that I find very encouraging is general counsel or boards, when you're talking to them, increasingly they, they're asking, well, what is the right thing to do here? Let's start there. And when you ask that question, you really open up a dialogue because people have different views of what the right thing is depending on their experience, their areas of responsibility. But that leads to the most open kind of dialogue. It allows you to air all the issues, figure out what the problems are, if any, how to be how they should be solved. But it really gets you to the value proposition that we are really trying to emphasize. And so I'm very encouraged that I hear that increasingly uh, from companies. Well, what is the right thing to do? And then let's work from there. And I find that to be uh, very effective. Right. Well, that goes to the – I mean when you describe that, you know, you can do the precise legal thing that from a legal perspective is right. But the big picture, you're, you, you may end up doing the wrong thing, right? Right. And, and, and just to pick up on that, you know, we always say some of our best work is the work no one ever hears about. But there are a lot sure. of times when clients call and say, can we do this? Is this legal? And particularly for clients you have a good relationship with, the answer is, is frequently, it's legal, but you don't want to do that because I know your company, I know your values, and you're not going to be happy if you do it. Right. Jonathan, you did? Yeah, well, no, I, I was, I was going to talk just a little bit more on this, on the question of is it legal because it, it is a question we frequently get. Yeah. And, and you, you remember from proper practice, Roger, right? You get this question and, and the answer is exactly as, as often as David said. And the, the, my answer to the client often is that's not the question you want to be asking me. I, I can I can show you tons of things that are quote legal, but they're still going to get you an audit. They're still going to get you an investigation. They're still going to wind you up in front of a suspension of debarment official. So like h- helping the clients ask the right question sometimes is right. is half the battle. Right, and getting them to sort of folk you know they know themselves. Right, you just have to sort of pull it out of them. Is that fair to say? That's exactly right. So much is, and I think we've uh, we tend to shrink away from that values discussion. And, and Scott's uh, prior point is really an important one. And lawyers historically, people look to lawyers to talk about values. As a trial lawyer, when you're arguing a case, you really frame your arguments not in terms of narrow legal and you know whether we complied with the law, but you frame it to a jury in terms of broad principles, shared values. And so, in some ways, what we're doing is very new, but it's really drawing on some very old ideas and principles that I think get lost as our matters get bigger and more complex. But it comes down to that sort of um, very, very simple messaging and very simple way of thinking about things. And that that's in many ways, that's what lawyers are really charged to do. So a lot of what we've been doing is just articulating what what is it that we do and, and what value do we bring to the values uh, discussion? Well, I have a very simple and straightforward message. Thank you guys for being on the show. I appreciate it. My guests today have been David Douglas, Scott Mayberry, and Jonathan Ernie, all partners at Shepherd Mullen, part of the Shepherd Mullen's Organizational Integrity Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, 
you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.